Hi, everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. I'm Paul Fox. And this is Kevin Ma. And this is episode six for September 16th, 2009. So, Kevin, we had a typhoon this week. Yep. Uh, Kopu, wasn't it? That's the name. Yeah, they come up with some weird names for the typhoons that pass through here. I'm not sure. Um, where do you do you do you know where they get their naming system from? I because it sounded I, I I saw the name and I was like, isn't that a character from Sanrio? <laughs> I think uh the the Asian countries they alternate uh, naming the the storms each year, and this year is Japan's turn, so we've had some really so, nonsensical names or that some people might not get. Typhoons, fortunately, are not at, at least the ones that come through Hong Kong don't seem to be quite as strong as the ones we get in Florida, back in the states. Um, but it's nice because every once in a while we get we get a signal number eight, and that means we all get to have the day off and go home and watch movies or play video games or entertain ourselves as we will. Yeah, that's something that you definitely don't have in California because we don't have uh, hurricanes yeah. or storms. So um, just to be getting a day off because of storm is an interesting thing for someone who hasn't been here for fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. And so, how 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 did you think Kopu compared with? Uh, Super Typhoon movie. <laughs> Actually, it, it wreaked a lot more damage than watching the movie did because the last two storms didn't really have much of an effect on me. For some reason, the windows, I didn't hear any of the wind. The, the rain didn't come in. But this time, the rain blew right at my window and the kitchen. Um, I have a little leak at the um, at the fan. So I had to. I was spending all morning on the, the, the second morning after the typhoon just cleaning up the kitchen. Yeah, you were saying you had like water water puddles all over the place yeah it's something that you can't fix because it's the it's the direction of the window or something so there's no way to fix it so uh -huh. something i live with all right well let's get into our show today first up coming up we've got some news from some local news here from Hong Kong. Uh, first bit of news is the film Inglorious Bastards, which uh, I think, Kevin, you talked about uh, a couple weeks back, yep. is getting a re-release here in Hong Kong, an uncut Category 3 version. And this may actually get me out to the cinema to watch it because I think I mentioned before, I wasn't, I wasn't too interested in actually watching the cut version. Yeah, I, I, I'm just pissed because we were supposed, this is a version that we were supposed to get in the first place. Because last, uh, I think at least most of Tarantino's films has been, have been released here at Category 3 anyway. So I don't know what, they were, what Echo and Universal were thinking when they decided to do the 2B cut. Yeah, but did, do you think now that, that because the film's already played that the Category 3 version may not get much in terms of revenue? Or do you think that local audiences will come out to sort of see what they missed? Apparently, a lot of people like this movie, even in Hong Kong. So I'm guessing those who really cared about the violence or care about seeing someone's scalp get cut off, I think they're going to pay to watch it again. And those who knew about the cut version now can go pay to see the uncut version. Personally, me, I didn't really like it that much the first time. So I have no reason to pay the movie company twice for ripping me off the first time. Hmm. That's a that's a good point. Uh, I'm just wondering if if this will, you know, if there will be people out there who are saying to themselves, well, you know, I saw it, not that interested in seeing the few moments that were cut out. I can wait for DVD. Um, I, I as, as we talked about before, Watchmen, 
you know, they sort of had a dual release where it was going on at the same time. I'm not sure that releasing this version after is is the best strategy for the film. A second piece of news we've got this week is the United Artists Cinema in Wampo is closing. Kevin, do you have any details on that? Yeah, uh, with the new um, Ice Square Theater opening up in Jim Sa Trey, right across the street from Chungking Mansion, mind you, um, with the new fake, including the new fake IMAX, IMAX digital screen, um, the UA Wampoa, which is located in the somewhat isolated um, district of Hong Hum, uh, will be closing. Uh, this theater has been around for, I think, 20 years. 25 years, ever since Wampoa, this isolated neighborhood popped up, the UA cinemas came with it. I personally remember a lot of um, memories from watching movies there. I remember one time my dad and my brother went to watch um, the Stephen Chow Bigger movie. Um, do you remember the name, Paul? The Bigger So movie? Which movie is it? Uh, the one where he plays the beggar and then... and then he Oh, King, comes- King of Beggars. King of Beggars, yeah. yeah. They went off to watch King of Beggars and I went to watch Home Alone 2 sitting third row in the left corner this mm-hmm. is one of my that's one of the most memorable cinematic experiences for me so so it's like a bit of my childhood going away you know the Wampoa closing out have you ever been to the UA Wampoa? yeah I've, I, I've gone there quite frequently even though it, it is as you say sort of out of the way um, if you know sort of the minibus routes to get out to it it's not that difficult to get to from uh, Hong Hong station the thing I liked about it was that it was a big you know the theaters that I think what do they have two or three houses and they're really big in terms yeah, of, I think in that. terms of capacity. So a lot of times if I was looking at some of the newer theaters like the AMC um, or, or some of the other UA chains, but if they were pretty much at capacity in terms of ticket sales and there weren't many seats left, I could almost always find a pretty good seat at, at Wampoa. And the ticket prices there, I guess because of its somewhat remote air, area or remote location, compared with other theaters, uh, the ticket prices were generally a bit cheaper, too. Yeah, it, it really appeals to the residential neighborhood. But yeah. the, the, same, one, the, you know, I heard... the one thing that I, that I always had a problem with with that theater, though, that sort of made it not one of my first choices is that it didn't, you know, it wasn't a newer theater. It didn't have sort of stadium-style seating that you get at, at the AMCs and uh, some of the more even more recent theaters. And the seating, even though they had a lot of seating, it was very tight, you know, and, and being somewhat tall, my knees were typically always cramped up against the seats in front of me. So it wasn't the most comfortable theater, but it was one that I knew that if there was a popular film, popular local film or a popular Hollywood film that I couldn't get tickets to anywhere else, and it was showing at Wampoa, I could pretty much always guarantee that I could get a seat there. Of course, now what would you get to replace it for four screen theater of only 120 seats each as probably still no stadium seating knowing knowing ua yeah so this are is... they i mean they're 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 are have they like lost the lease for this are they they're not going to re- replace a cinema and so they'll no longer be a cinema in wampoa basically is that what's going to happen no i think there will no because it's redundant so ua decided to close it down because ua is also opening the, the theater in uh yeah. So now the only theater left in Hong Kong will be the Lux, which I haven't been there. Um, it sounds like similar to the Dynasty. Yeah, I haven't been there either. But it's interesting because it seems like, you know, for a while, UA was sort of the dominant big chain in Hong Kong. And it seems like they're losing ground. I remember I used to 
watch a lot of movies in Shatin. When they had the cinema there, they had it. It was uh, they had several houses above ground, and they tore all that down. And now all they have is like two small houses, two or three small houses that were in the basement that you can still go and watch movies. But it's you know, you if you've got a fairly decent sized TV, it's probably just as good um, of a picture because those are some pretty small screens and there's not a lot of seat space. Yeah. Well, lucky for you, Paul. I think they're um, rebuilding or they're renovating the UA Shatin, which I learned this week was actually the very first multiplex theater in Hong Kong. Yeah. Well, see, now I, I heard that a, a while back when they first tore the building down, that, that there were plans to sort of redo it. And it's been a long time. And I just figured that maybe uh, with the financial problems that were going on, that they just kind of scrapped the idea. Um, ticket sales, you know, in, in Hong Kong are not, you know, doing very well in general and a lot of theaters are having trouble we've lost so many local theaters just in the in the short time that i've been here um that if we're losing chain theaters too that's that's not really a good sign well i hope the ua shotting renovation does go through there's really not that many good theaters out there and uh since my girlfriend's out there, i'm going there out there more often these days so yeah, i'm hoping there are better theaters it's good for me you know because there's there's really not too many theaters in new territories now uh, they still have Broadway. Still has a, a house out in Yunlong, which is still about an hour away from me. Shatin was the closest, um, but since you know, as I said, after they tore it down, I wasn't that interested in going uh, to watch movies there in those tiny houses. So um, I'll be very happy if they can renovate it and, and put in a really nice theater there. All right, let's uh, go on to some news from around the globe. Our first bit of news that uh, we have to talk about, again, is a little bit of sad news, and that is the passing of Patrick Swayze, um, actor quite renowned for his roles in movies like Dirty Dancing uh, and Ghost, and as well as uh, films like uh, Point Break and Red Dawn. Uh, fortunately, he had pancreatic cancer, which is one of the cancers that they still have a lot of difficulty in dealing with because there are very few, there are very few ways to treat it. Um, and he was fighting this for a while, and he lost the fight in the end. And he's somebody who's certainly going to be missed in in the film community. He did a wide variety of genres. If you look at his um, at his sort of uh, biography over on IMDb, you'll see he's been in. Uh, he's done voices for Disney. Um, he was still working quite a bit up, you know, up until the end. And different people, I think, will have a take a different take on what they remember him most for. So, Kevin, what what do you think? What what were some of your his uh, favorite films in your mind? Well, it's not my favorite film of his, but I remember the first movie I watched um, back in 1993 was a movie called Fatherhood. Uh, it was one of the first movies I saw when I first moved to America. I didn't know much English, but that's just one of the few, you know, one of those little movies or the movies that didn't do so well, the cheap commercial stuff that I always remember yeah. for some reason. Yeah. But I kind of, and after that, I did, and I finally saw Ghost a few years after that the first time. Yeah. So Patrick Swayze was, you know, he's a good actor, and and, and even when he's in stuff like Fatherhood, you know, still quite charming leading man, and um. For some reason, these couple of days, I just keep thinking, what if Patrick Swayze did a movie of Kirk Russell? 
Mm. Those would be your two coolest looking guys from the late 80s, the early 90s. And it would be great to see a movie of them. Yeah. I think the the first thing that I remember him in, and it it had a strong impact on me because I, I was still fairly young at the time, was Red Dawn. And I remember going and watching this by myself, and I was in I was in high school at the time, and it was one of those points in your life when you see a movie and you suddenly realize, um, you you start to think about the world differently for whatever reason, whether it's you see somebody die in a movie and you start to understand what death is or things like that. And I remember seeing Red Dawn, and you know the basic premise was that. For whatever reason, uh, American security breaks down, and uh, like the the Cubans and the Russians uh, team up, and they invade. They have a they have a blitzkrieg invasion of the eastern coast of America, and here you have this small southern town, and and these southern redneck boys who are are you know in their high school, and their high school gets attacked, and. Uh, they flee into the mountains and their father was really hard. And, you know, he's sort of this good old redneck boy who taught him how to survive and hunt and things and prepared them, you know, to, to survive in this type of environment. And I just remember after watching this movie thinking, wow, that could really, you know, the, that could really happen. You know, somebody from the outside could invade the, U the United States. What would happen if there was a war here? And I went home and I had a long discussion with my father and he, basically had to sit me down and tell me all the reasons why something like that was very implausible. <laughs> um, but it was, it was just one of those moments where a movie sort of strikes you in, in a very impactful way for whatever reason. And that's sort of one of my first memories of him. Now, he was very famous for some things like he did a TV series called North and South about mm -hmm. the, the Civil War in the United States um, of course, Dirty Dancing and Ghost were sort of the, he was the romantic lead. And uh, that is probably what a lot of women will remember him most for. But I think my favorite film of his was um, an, an actually not a very well-known film. It was, a, it was sort of like a post-apocalyptic science fiction called Steel Dawn. And it came out, uh, when did that come out? Uh, Probably in the late 80s. Yeah, 1987 that came out. And, um, you know, it was just, it was it was sort of like a direct-to-video kind of uh, B science fiction movie, but I ended up really liking it. And that's sort of the, the Patrick Swayze I remember. And then he went on to do things like um, Next of Kin and Roadhouse, where, you know, the, the sort of tough guy roles that I guess as a, as a young as a young, you know, adolescent male, you would identify with far more than a, a movie like Ghost or uh, Dirty Dancing. But he was certainly very versatile in, in the, the roles that he took. And I know he was quite famous for a film, for the film he did with Keanu, uh, Point, Break. Point Break. And it's really a shame that he had to go so early. I mean, he's really rather young. And uh, a lot like John Hughes, it's... It's interesting and it's also a little bit disheartening to see some of these sort of iconic figures that you grew up with going at passing at such a young and early age considerably. And a great thing was uh, even even though he was he was suffering from disease he went and did an entire season of TV, yeah. a TV show. Yeah. That shows you how just how tough he is. Yeah. Um 
yeah, he he kept working and uh, he sort of kept going going through to the end. Uh, I guess one of the films I should probably mention that was uh, sort of uh, controversial for the time was the the film he did to to Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. Did you ever see that? That was, I think, the second or third Patrick Swayze film I saw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, I thought it was a fine. It's a good movie. I don't think it's a bad movie. I think. Um, what, you you never see Wesley Snipes and Patrick Swayze in, in drag again, and they were good in it. Yeah, yeah. Again, yeah, it he, he 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 took chances with some of the roles that he did, and uh, yeah. Again, it was it's just a shame that he won't be around to do more things. All right, let's move on to our East Screen topic for this week. Uh, we have two films to talk about. The first film is Kung Fu Chefs, and I'm going to turn this over to Kevin to tell us a little bit about the synopsis and his thoughts on the film. Okay, well, um, this Kung Fu Chef theatrical experience was one of the more memorable ones during my time here in Hong Kong, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, first, the movie itself. Uh, it stars the uh, original stars of Kung Fu Fighter, uh, Venice Wu, uh, also with uh, Samuel Hung, uh, Sherry Ying, and uh, ex-Morning Musume member Ike Kago, and uh, now one of my favorite supporting actors in Hong Kong, Louis Phan. Anyway, uh, Samuel here uh, plays a chef for a small rural village, but um, because of a conspiracy uh, instigated by the villain played by Louis Fang, he is kicked out, Samuel is kicked out of his village and has to uh, I don't know what he was doing out there. Uh, he was doing the Kung Fu David Kearney thing. Somehow he uh, wanders into a restaurant run, ran by uh, Sherry Ying. Uh, at the same time, Vanessa Wu, an arrogant young wannabe Kung Fu fighter slash chef, uh, shows up and tries to be an apprentice to the restaurant's original head chef. Anyway, Samo um, proves his cooking skills and he ends up taking over the restaurant and, of, of course, also taking Vanessa up as his disciple. Um, and eventually there's some cooking contests. Uh, of course, Louis Fan will want revenge. Icago will be really annoying, and Sherry Ying will do absolutely nothing, which is I'm very thankful for because uh, she doesn't go into a romance with Samuel Hung. That's about it. Um, as for the film itself, um, I didn't see Kung Fu Fighter, so I didn't know um, how bad it was. I've heard very bad things about it. But, you know, Kung Fu Chef is not quality cinema by any means. It looks uh, produced... It looks to be produced really cheaply. It, it, the jokes are not very good. Vanessa Wu is a very bad actor, but you know, Samuel Hung was good. You can see him kick his son's ass. Um, it's a very entertaining film, although not in that quality way. Um, I don't know, what do you think about it, Paul? I think you enjoyed it a lot, is that right? Yeah, I did. And uh, again, part of it was the initial experience going into the film that may have contributed to it, but we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, the film itself, I just found really fun. Uh, it was nice to see Samo. Uh, I know he's been doing a couple movies in in recent years where he's taking on taken on a starring role. But again, here he's not really the center of the film um, as as much as you know Vanessa Wu is. Uh, he has a very significant role, but you can see that he's 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 sort of there 
to take a back seat to the younger generation, which I think is fine. Uh, but it is good to see him, and it's really good to see him in action. He has several significant action scenes. And this film, I mean, if you've seen other, style, you know, sort of cooking battle films, you know, Stephen Chow's God of Cookery probably being the pinnacle uh, of this genre, you've seen a lot of what goes on here before, but it's still very entertaining for the most part. It It is cheap in some ways. Um, you can tell that they're cutting some corners in places. It does get a bit nonsensical. I, I just remember the scene where they're in, in the wet market and um, the, the the young Japanese actress, you know, her character, just she sees the the bad guy thuggies and she just decides to go ballistic on him you know it's just like out of the blue she you know does a, a flying double kick over the 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 orange cart and just starts a you know starts trouble but taking all that into stride it is a really fun film and i was saying afterwards that this reminds me of the feeling that i got watching some films in the 1990s and, and when you look at when you look at the effects that they're using here um, when you look at the fight choreography and put all that all that together, it's a really great '90s film. I mean, really, it's a really great '90s film. In today's environment, with the way things are going in terms of funding, and you know, movies having to have release being be released in China and having to have mixed casts to try and get movies to sell and play in different markets, it still works. And you know, it's it's entertaining for what it is. Well, sadly, back in the '90s, it would be Samuel Hung and Andy Lau, or or a better actor than Venice Wu, I think. Yeah, po- possibly, also, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. In addition to cutting corners, it seems like they were also cutting scenes in the third act. It just felt like at one point, I don't know if you know which point I'm talking about. It just seemed like they skipped the entire yeah, chapter. Yeah, there, there's there there are a couple points where there are some editing issues where they're just there's just a gaping jump in terms of narrative storytelling that it's like, wait a minute, you didn't resolve that problem. And that was somewhat of an immediate problem that should have been resolved. And then they just jump to a scene that seems sometime later and it's assumed that that got resolved. And, you know, again, it's got minor problems like that. My big, uh, one of my biggest problems with the film though was the audio quality. And this is a pet peeve of mine that I've always had and I continue to have to this day. And it's just there. I mean, Samo is dubbed for the most part. Uh, a lot of the other characters, all the other characters are dubbed. Some of the characters are dubbing themselves. Um, Very few actors. I think most of the major roles are dubbed. And even um, even Lam Chi Chung, the, the, the fat guy from Shining Soccer, it seems like he only dubbed one scene and then he just so he's got someone else to dub the rest of his yeah, role. Yeah, it's just, I mean, that is, you know... Come on, guys. It's George Lucas's rule. Like George Lucas is a filmmaker or not, he knows a thing or two about sound. And he said, sound is 50% of the film. And if you're going to have cruddy sound, it's going to impact your film. And to to have that sort of canned, in-studio uh, dubbing, and the dubbing was really bad in the fact that it, it wasn't even a trying to match lip movements. Um, even for the Cantonese speakers, it was like you could see what you could hear what was being said and you could see that it just wasn't matching in time with the lip movements of the actors and i felt that 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 aspect of it was really kind of lazy and i really wish that filmmakers would start paying a bit more attention to sound when they do productions 
Yeah, and there's no excuse for it anymore. I mean, it's not the time where they only they have to make a movie within two weeks. They probably had months. Well, yeah, I, it, it's hard to say. I mean, I know that budgeting constraints are still a primary issue. You know, for a smaller budget film like this, that's not going to get a lot of theatrical release, especially locally. If they're looking to cut costs, one of the first things they're going to do is probably cut, you know, the boom operator and the sound guy and just simply say, well, for so many decades, we've been doing in-studio sound in post and we'll just keep doing that. But it just really sounds bad. It just, I don't know. Again, it's a pet peeve of mine. So maybe there are people out there who are used to watching the films like that and it doesn't really bother them. But for some reason, it just really grates on my nerve. Yeah. Let's move on and talk about our next film, which is called The Unbelievable. Yay! And uh, <laughs> I, I, I guess I will talk about this film since uh, I don't believe Kevin's seen it. And uh, I, I've seen a bit of a TV show. Yeah, and I wouldn't recommend for Kevin to see it as I, I would be afraid it would damage his young mind. Um, So The Unbelievable, uh, to give a little bit of backstory into this, this is actually based from a somewhat long-running TV series. And it is a a TV series, there there are similar series out there, you know, investigating the supernatural. I know that on the Sci-Fi channel for several years, they've had a show called Ghost Hunters, which I've only seen bits and pieces of in places. I've never really watched it. Um, it. It's got some relation to a, a, a very old show like In Search Of that, you know, Leonard Nimoy used to host. and um, But primarily, it's this group of hosts who are looking at ghost stories and supernatural phenomenon and um, mystics and spirituality in Asia. Not really. They're just looking for ghosts, actually. That's the, that's the selling point. Yeah, Prim- primarily. Um, it, it's... And this is, a, this, again, this is a genre that's been somewhat popular in Hong Kong in terms of not just TV programs, but I know that there are some radio programs that come on at night where, you know, the people tell ghost stories and people can call in and share uh, experiences possibly that they've had or that they've heard of, heard of second or third or fourth or fifth hand. Um, so primarily that's the premise of this show and the the movie extends that premise and the, the show was originally hosted by Simon Loy of, um, you know, films like Troublesome Night and many of the other ghost genre films that have that were made popular in Hong Kong in the 90s. And over years, uh, he, he stopped hosting the show and more hosts came on. And so now I think you've got uh, around the sixth, sixth generation of hosts. Uh, one of the guests hosts in the current generation is named Rachel Chan. So she is sort of the central figure for the film and the film in the film the crew travels to thailand primarily um and one of the reasons they do this is in part because of the indian ocean tsunami which have happened a few years back killed so many people and they claim that the the area is now rife with spirits because of the way that those people died and so this is a good location to go for their spirit hunting classy yeah so initially, the, the show starts off uh, somewhat gruesomely because they, they actually start off with stock footage of corpse cleanup in the, in the post-tsunami uh, period when they just had bodies everywhere that were being washed up and washed around uh, after, the, after the tsunami effect. And so that is kind of disturbing. 
And I think that's one of the reasons that they give this film a category three is because you're actually seeing, um, you know, dead bodies of real people that died during the tsunami being recovered. But that's stock footage, and I'm not sure how they got clearance to show that. And I think that if you were probably in the West and the States, you would never be allowed to to show something like that without lots and lots of legal papers and people granting rights and, and signing off. So uh, that part that they got permission to show that in its in and of itself is a little bit unbelievable. So that's leading back to our title. <laughs> but initially, Rachel and and her small team uh, go to Thailand and, and they get assigned to this corpse recovery crew who um, it seems like basically their job is ambulance chasers because basically they the the team and the the crew is just standing around and then they get called to go to the scene of an accident and it's never really clear whether the people at the scene of the accident are dead or they're just hurt and they're waiting to get taken to the hospital and the camera work is very shoddy and shaky basically it just shows people running to the truck and then running out of the truck and then showing a quick close up of a guy on the ground and there's no real explanation of all this sort of shaky Blair Witch style exposition that's going on. That that segment quickly moves on because they get a call to go to a house where there's a bad smell. And when there's a bad smell, you know something bad's <laughs> about to happen. So they go into this house, and lo and behold, they find a suicide victim. And that's when you get this Master Sito who comes on the scene, who's sort of the Taoist master that's attached with the crew. And he comes in and he says, okay, this guy who, you know, he's committed suicide and uh, he, he's going to be a restless spirit. So we, for some reason, they decide they need to contact the spirit. Don't know, it's never really clear why they want to contact the spirit other than to try and get the spirit caught on camera for the show. Yikes. Okay. So in order to do this, um, Master Sito says that it's very imperative uh, to use girls because girls have stronger negative energy than guys, <laughs> right? So what what invariably happens is they have to put Rachel and another girl crew member um, who, for this one scene, was, was I guess she was one of the Thai uh, translators. And so she and this girl uh, have to sit in a circle. Um, there's no lights in this building. It looks like sort of a, a little, a small, you know, three-story village building or a housing complex, but there's no light. So they have candles all throughout the room. They can't apparently set up, you know, uh, regular film equipment lights either. Maybe that scares the ghosts or something. They, they never really explain, but there's candles. It scares the accountants. That's what something. There, there's candles all around. And then the two girls are required to say these, you know, Taoist spells or chants to try and get the ghost to come by and, you know, have a chat and be on camera for them. Now, all the while, all the male crew have to stay really far away because <laughs> apparently their energy will scare the ghost or something. So they're all like way outside downstairs. And so the girls are in there and they've got a multiple camera set up. Um, they've got like one good camera, one medium quality camera, and then one really super low resolution camera that looks like it was my old, um, you know, my old webcam that I had from 2000. And that camera you know, it's really grainy, but it's seen in and the image quality goes in and out, but it seems to show things that they never really catch with the other camera. And so invariably there's a sound, 
the you know a door will slam shut the girls will start screaming and then the guys all the male crew members and master c to have to rush in and you know and then the doors suddenly jam they can't open the door and and something falls and all this well you know you've got all this activity and they've got a musical score going on in the background to sort of make make things more intense and you're not really seeing anything and nothing is ultimately explained everybody once they get thorpe and everybody has to rush away and this is basically the pacing of the film in in several of the sort of ghost hunting moments now there are some other segments um that might be considered somewhat funny somewhat worthwhile um if if, if they weren't so brutal in terms of of what they show on screen uh there's there are a couple segments where the, the crew goes looking for these um thai shamans you know these spiritual shamans and this one shaman they meet he, he's apparently evil or possessed or something and basically he starts eating a raw fish you know a, a live raw fish which you know if you go to a sushi restaurant may not really be a big deal but it is kind of gross and disgusting and and then later um he rips apart uh, a live chicken and it's really graphic because they, you know, they're they're showing sort of these animal mutilations to live animals, and and that part is really disturbing. That, and I'm not saying that these scenes were staged or that that these people that they got these shamans they got were, you know, were actors or not. I I don't I I don't want to cast any speculation on that. But what they were doing here was really not necessary for the film, um, and and I think that it's the, the violence that they were showing to some of these animals was also part of the category three reason um there is one somewhat amusing scene where they've gone to this other shaman and he's performing a secret poison making ritual and the whole way that they get in to see this guy it just looks really staged and and kind of fake but let's assume that it's not for a minute he gets to the (laughs) ritual and so he's got this poison soup which is supposed to be really good and and help you become more powerful and he's also mutilated some some little lizards and things uh, and and he's he's injected you know a toad and to make this super ancient secret poison soup, and so then he offers it to like Master Sito and the crew and and nobody wants it and he's saying oh this is really good stuff very rare very expensive and nobody <laughs> takes it so then he takes a big swig of it and he spits it and you know sort of a spray method on everybody and then him and all his acolytes get up and try and shake down the crew. They're saying, okay, now you owe us 200,000, um, 200,000 Thai bot because we've just given you this super rare thing, you know? And, and the crew guy, uh, the crew manager saying, well, we're not going to pay that. That's ridiculous. Let's go. And they're trying to go and they're blocking their way in there. The camera gets all shaky all of a sudden. So you can't see what's going on. And people are saying, run, run, run. And then it's a, you know, a bit later, apparently they, you know, a couple of the crew got in a scuffle and, Again, like with the earlier scenes, you can't see enough to actually tell what's going on. So it's very questionable. Well, it's all about using these exploiting the dead, exploiting the supernatural, uh, really gross images. All of these help sell tickets, let's face it. I mean, even my, my hairdresser wanted to see this. Well, I'm sorry, my stylist.
I've written up a review for this for Love Hong Kong Film, and and I say in that review, and I want to say here, I am not here to say that the supernatural things or or the belief systems of you know people who believe in shamanism or whatever are bunk. I'm not here to say that. What I'm here to say is that this movie, as a movie, looking at it from you know film technique standards and and things that they're supposedly trying to claim that this is a documentary and these things are real, that aspect of it is bunk. Um, and if they were going to for, for something to be a farce, then they got a lot closer than if they were going for something to be somewhat legitimate. Well, I'm really superstitious, especially about the dead, so uh, I'm definitely staying away from this one. Yeah, well, that would probably be a good idea, but not not for the reasons you're thinking, but... You know, again, I, t- I I don't like to be so utterly negative about a film. I, I try to find the positive in anything, and I just could not find you know anything positive here. It was just an unbearable experience the whole time through. Unbelievably bad. I will come back towards the end and recommend something that's far more appealing if you are interested in ghosts and and supernatural things. So. Uh, we'll come back towards that to the end. But for now, let's move on to our West screen topic. And Kevin, you've got a film that you'd like to recommend for us and talk about a little bit this week. Yes, this week I went to see uh, Sam Mendes' um, new film, Away We Go. Sam Mendes was the director of American Beauty, Road to Perdition, um, and last year's Revolutionary Road. So I'm sure a lot of people who follow Western film will know him already. Um Away We Go is his um, smallest film to date, for for sure. He's always done these kind of grand, elegant um, American suburban story or or about you know classic periods that would cost tons of money to produce. This is a much much smaller film. Uh, it's written by the um, husband and wife team of Dave Eggers and Mandela Vida. They're both very well-known writers. I haven't read anything they've written, though, but they're very well-known. Um, it stars two, not two not very bankable stars, uh, drunk John Krasinski of uh, the American version of The Office and Maya Rudolph, who used to be on Saturday, Saturday Night Live, who is taking on a more dramatic role here. Um, anyway, they play a, a married couple. Uh, not married, sorry. Um they, pay, they play a couple, and uh, the character that Maya Rudolph plays is married, even though, she, I mean, uh, sorry, I'll go back. And the character that Maya Rudolph plays is pregnant, even though she refused to get married. And then when um, John Krasinski's uh, parents decide to move to Belgium, they realize that they don't really have to stay around where they're living anymore, so they travel around America looking for a new place to live, and they... Uh, see their old uh, acquaintances along the way, and of course, none of them are normal, which hence the the comedic aspect. Now, where we go is very much in the style of these kind of hip indie American movie that kind of peaked with Juno. Uh, you know, a lot of co- pop culture references, a lot of these acoustic guitar music, uh, a lot of dry humor, and uh, I, for one, enjoyed the dry humor. Um, some of them are not easy to pick up. That's why. Um, the audience around me didn't really laugh. They did something else. I'll talk about that later. But it is um, fairly amusing. Um, I think the audience came out hearing their conversation. They came out touched by the couple's story. Even though for me, what made it memorable was the strange characters they run into, including uh, a very rude mother played by Allison Janney, um, and also uh, 
Maggie Gyllenhaal playing uh, sort of a hippie parent. Anyway, um, all in all, charming film. Not Sandman's greatest film because I just feel like this isn't really what he's used to doing. I think this is more like a writer's film than a director's film, so he didn't have a chance to stretch his um, directorial ability here. But it is a nice exercise, and it's amusing. Um, I wouldn't say it's underrated because it's kind of an art house film that I can see why a lot some people wouldn't enjoy. But for me, it's and it's not yeah, it's not really a memorable film by any means, but it is very amusing and it's a nice mm. um sometimes touching film. Anyway, the my biggest problem with the film was not the film itself, was it was the screening that I went to. Now uh, I went to uh, one of Hong Kong's nicer theaters, the vibrating seat theater, so to speak, uh, the Grand Cinema. And it was Sunday afternoon, so I knew there's there were gonna be all kinds of people there. Is uh so but I didn't expect that you know, there will be the audience that you might run into at the dynasty really? at something like the Grand. Yeah, um, at least twice I heard people pick up cell phones. Actually, it started at the beginning when these two guys sat down on my right and were talking loudly about having seen Largo Winch there. Now, I've seen Largo Winch, so I don't need to know Largo Winch's story, and yet they decided to recite it for me just when the film begins. So for the first time, I effort in my theatrical all my theatrical experiences i went Shh, at them I, i've never had to do it before but they were so annoying it's just almost like they were you know i've seen largo winch i'm sure other people have seen largo winch and people who were watching away we go we're not trying to see largo witch so and we didn't care so um and then during the course of the film like i said before twice the cell phones ran off um and they people were stupid enough to take up the phone and said loudly i'm watching a movie what do you want I'm watching a movie. Yes, I know you're watching a movie, now, so please shut up. If I can interrupt you for a minute. Yes. Were these people, um, were, were they carrying on like the phone conversation? Were these locals? Was this on Cantonese or were these foreigners? Uh, Cantonese. Um, the foreigners were laughing because they were the only people who got the, vo- uh, the verbal jokes. Mm. So that's the only time I heard from them. But yeah, it was these locals who not only started talking about going to the movies, but they started talking about what they need to do. Like, uh, I think I heard one point dinner or something like that. And then, you know, as if that's not distracting enough. And then um, the guy that sat next to my girlfriend on the right started bobbing his seat front and back for the entire last 30 minutes of the film. You know, as if, I guess, you know, his, he had eight, whatever. I don't know what he had. And then turning, <laughs> I didn't see it, but his hand would start bobbing along to the music and he would start la la laing along to the songs. Mm. I don't know. What was, what, you know, I think these are some basic human you know manners that we should all learn about not just you know theater manners that when you're sitting in a chair next to someone don't shake your leg and bop your seat front and up and don't la 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 to the music when you well maybe maybe he thought he was watching the film like in a 4d experience for some reason (laughs) i'm sure he would like to be in the screen or strumming guitar along but he's not you know i paid we all paid money to watch this movie and this is a, a quiet movie so when someone talks, you really hear someone talk. Hey!
Well, we're getting close on time, so let's move on to our next section, our Flying Buddha Pick of the Week. Now, this week, we've got to get a little bit of a backstory as to why our picks of the week um, are sort of based around uh, the selections that they are. So, Kevin, do you want to fill people in on the, the story, the little bit of, uh, of uh, movie magic that happened to us a week ago? Yeah, um, after uh, last week's movie-going experiences where we only had 11 people at each showing for the two movies that we went, we didn't think there were that many people for Kung Fu Chef. And true enough, when we were waiting at the lobby, there really weren't that many people, which was just us, five of us. But then, you know, a special guest came in through the doors. We were waiting. It was uh, Helena Law, Law Lan, one of the um, most, I guess, prolific uh, elder actresses in Hong Kong. She's been in the trouble some night movies and a staple in horror movies. And uh, it's also one of the most, you can say, reliable actresses, no matter what age you're talking about. Um, for me, this is incredible because I've seen her act ever since I was young. I grew up watching Law Lan yeah. act. So yeah. seeing her come through the door, I, you know, because um, she just sort of walked by me and and then you know, our people in our movie group said, hey, that's Law Lan. I'm like, what? No way at at you know Golden Harvest Bangkok, and yeah to uh, sort to sort of set set the stage, um, and 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 to get a better understanding of of it, you know as you say she 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 walked through the door, but it wasn't like this grand entrance or anything like oh I'm here to see a movie, I basically turned around, and and you know I just saw this you know somewhat short older lady pass by me with. Uh, an older gentleman who I assumed was her husband and uh, uh, a companion that was with them. I didn't think anything of it. And then I saw one of our, one of our movie goers in our group was saying, you know, pointing. And then I looked and I recognized her and, and, you know, she was just like anybody. She had just come there uh, to watch the film and she was nice enough to actually start up uh, a conversation with us because nobody else was there. I mean, as you were saying, this is golden harvest Mongkok. This isn't, you know, typically a prime venue for for watching cinema, um, and and she was there and she started talking to us and was just very pleasant and asking us, you know, are we that were we there to watch Samo's movie and um, just just all around, it was just an all around nice experience. Yeah, she was just this nicely not nicely dressed. She wasn't even that nice. She was um, presentable, of course, um, but. She looked really ordinary, just some kind of ordinary older lady watching a movie with what yeah. seems to be her family. Very, just very much like the characters you see her play plays. in the movies. Yeah, right, right. Without, without the green light flashing from or, or shooting from under her, her face. Yeah. Actually, I was hoping I had a green flashlight. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. And and the greatest thing was when when she left. Uh, she left before we did. She we turned around, look at her, and then she she waved to us. You know, told us every yeah. one of us you know, she, goodbye. She, goodbye. She made it a point to say goodbye to us on the way out of the theater, which was just, it was just very classy and very nice. It was not something that she had to do, and it. It, it it was just a I, you know I want to say magical that sounds kind of cheesy but it was for me um, you know looking over her filmography this is a person who has been working in Hong Kong film since you know the 1940s and she's got a huge uh, biography of things that she's worked on a lot of it I haven't even seen because she's got movies in the 1950s and the 1960s and some of these I think you can find 
at some smaller video shops, but typically they're black and white cinema. And, but you know, for, for Cantonese cinema that was done in black and white, the stuff that they've released on video usually isn't subtitled. Um, it's certainly not subtitled in English. And a lot of times it's not even subtitled in Chinese. So it's not that accessible for people who aren't that fluent with the language. Um, but then, you know, she's just, she's been working in the industry and done so many films. I mean, like you, I, I got to know her as sort of the, the ghost lady, um, or the lady who was always in, in ghost films, but she's been in, she was in some films, a few films in the 1970s. Um, but she really sort of made a comeback in the late eighties and she's been in lots of movies. I was, I was looking over her filmography. She's even in the U.S. film that um, Eric Zhang and Russell Wong did called Eat a Bowl of Tea. And I, you know, I've seen that film a couple times and I just had forgotten that she was in it, um, mostly because I'm so used to seeing her in the Hong Kong, you know, sort of the Hong Kong genre pieces that she's used to doing. Yeah, she's definitely one of those really prolific people that you don't notice that she's there, but, but you know, you know that, that who she is. There's just, you know, so many things that you, if you could really sit down and just talk with her and ask her about things about the industry and about experiences that she had. I mean, we were talking about Xing Fuan recently about, you know, all the things and all the people he's, he's worked with. And she's got a career that extends back even further than his. And if you look at the genres of films, I mean, well, I think it was Tim that was saying that she's in The Kid with um, Bruce Lee, right? Mm -hmm. So... And if you look at the things, the genres that she's worked in, she's been in Master Q films. Um, she's been in comedies. Of course, she's most famous for the sort of the ghost stories, but she's done, you know, just as much as anybody in the local industry. And she's even, I have a friend who's uh, active in some local drama and theater, and he was telling me about uh, a program called God Save the Queen which is a local stage program, and they're using her in that. She's not acting on stage, but they've got sort of multimedia involved, and she's playing the Queen of England. Uh, yeah, the poster of her yeah, with the white the, hair. If the, you see the, the poster, it's that's her image, you know, as, as the Queen. So uh, just a really kind of almost a sur surreal experience because you don't expect someone like this to sort of just show up at, at a theater, in, you know, sort of a, a smaller theater, to watch a movie, you know, with, with a bunch of, uh, movie geeks, you know, but there she was. And, uh, yeah. yeah, she's, she's one of those people who you would think watch all her movies at premieres, not on Thursday night shows. At yeah. Yeah. Go to Harvest Moncock. Well, because of that experience, um, both Kevin and I have picked um, our picks of the week this week with a little bit of the focus on uh, Miss Law. So, Kevin, why don't you start off and tell us what your pick is? Yeah, mine would be uh, one of her most prolific or one of the most famous uh, recent film roles. Uh, I believe it's also the one where she got her first Film Acting Award. I believe it was Best Supporting Actress at the Hong Kong Film Awards. And the movie is uh, Wilson Yip's Bullet Over Summer. Uh, of course, it stars Francis Ng and Louis Ku, as we all know. But it is uh, Miss Law as the um, senile um, granny um, who owns the place that uh, the two main characters are, 
are having their stakeout, and that really stood out of the film. Um, she was at the same time uh, funny, but also you feel sorry for a character right away because um, I guess she's seen now, so she mistaken um, Francis Ng as her son, and she, through her acting, you know, Miss Law is not only one of those um, actually you recognize, but it's also one of those people who is so naturally likable that she's sympathetic right away. But not only does that factor play into the film, but also the way her character is written and and how well she plays the role, you know, really make her the most um, memorable character of the film. And what did you like? Do you remember this role, Paul? I I don't I don't remember it. Um, in fact, I may not have seen Bullet Over Summer. If- uh, if my memory serves me, I'll have to look in my library. I might have seen because I've got a library of films back in the States that I really need to get shipped over here so I can merge it with the library I have here. And I may have seen it a long time ago uh, back in the States, but I'm I'm just not remembering it off the top of my head. Yeah, it's not only um, I think it's one of her most major roles because uh, she's in she usually isn't in a in a movie very long except I guess for the troublesome night movies which I haven't seen, um, but and also it, it is also Wilson Yip's uh, one of his best films. So um, those who didn't like Yip Man or thinks that uh, Wilson can do better than Yip Man should probably go see Bullet Over Summer right away and also to see of course Miss Law's performance. Mm-hmm. Well, my pick for this week, with some connection to Miss Law, is in fact the very first Troublesome Night film, Troublesome Night. And this is a pick that I would also recommend for people who are, you know, sort of interested, who might have a desire to watch something like The Unbelievable. And even though this is not trying to be a documentary, uh, it is still fun. And Simon Loy is the, the host, if you will, of the movie. And because it's an anthology film, and so he sort of takes up this role as a Rod Serling in Night Gallery, uh, sort of leading you through these various stories. And this is a really interesting film because as I went back and I was re-screening it, I'd seen it a long time ago, but I started to see all these old stars who, back when I watched it for the first time, they weren't really anybody. And now you look at him, you're like, hey, that's Louis Koo before he became Mr. Supertan, right? And that's Christy Chung, and uh, that's Ada Choi, and all of these stars who weren't quite as large as they are today, um, doing this sort of somewhat low budget, but still amazingly fun uh, ghost story anthology. So if you haven't seen the Troublesome Night movie, or it's been a while since you've seen it, I'd definitely recommend going back and revisiting it, because it is quite fun. Um, and of course it does have, uh, Miss Hel- uh, Helena Law in it. Her role is somewhat small, but she has constant appearances in points throughout the film. She's almost like a, a bookmarker for the various anthologies. Um, and this is a role that, you know, she would become somewhat stereotyped for, and she appears in many of the other Troublesome Nights, and I think they're up to like 20-something. I, I haven't even watched more than I haven't even watched 50% of them I would say I've got um several of the first ones first set up to number 10 and then I've got like number 15 and 16 and for a while they were just doing stuff that was direct to video I think um for example number 15 she's got a much larger role um and Eric Zhang's in that one but it was like shot on video and released <laughs> direct to video so the look and the quality of it's not quite as comparable 
So if you have a chance, and if you can find it, because I don't think they've done a re-release of this. I'm The one I have is still sort of the original Maya DVD that was put out in sort of a smaller CD-style case inside of a sleeve. And I haven't seen a re-release of, of the very first one, uh, at least in local stores. So you may, might be able to dig it up um, secondhand or through eBay or something. But it's definitely, if you're going to watch some of, the, some of these ghost story films that she's been in, this is definitely one of the better ones to see. All right, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. Um, we're really running a bit over time, but uh, we've had a lot to talk about. So if you'd like to follow along with the things that we're doing, you can follow Kevin over at his blog, uh, The Golden Rock, hosted on the Love Hong Kong Film site. And Kevin, what are some of the other ways people can get in touch with you or find out what you're up to? Yep, you can follow me on Twitter under The Golden Rock, one word, and you can also contact me um, at thegoldenrock at gmail.com. The Golden Rock is one word. Yeah, and of course, The Golden Rock, the blog. And if you're following along with us, again, you can always send us questions. We'll be happy to read your questions here on the show. Um, you can send them in via audio file, or you can write to us directly through the website, www.congcast, that's K-O-N-G-C-A-S-T.com. And so until next time, I think we'll be talking next time about uh, Louis Koo's new film, Accident, as well as anything else we manage to see between now and then. But until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we will see you next time. See you all next time.